Okay, so so we're in a period of the year right now, which is uh, between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And it's four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And these are called the days without sin. And um, on, the, on, the, on the most simple level, what that means is, is that, like it says in Perkei Avos, that it's, it's good to combine Torah with a livelihood. Because if you're learning Torah, that takes up a bunch of your day, and then you're making a living, that takes a bunch of your day. You don't have time to do anything wrong. So, so on the simplest level, the, um, these are called days without sin because there's so much to do. I mean, between building the sukkah and procuring your lulav and esrig and cooking for yantif and going to the mikvah and all the rest, there's, there's so much to do that... Um, you know, there's, uh, there's no time to do anything wrong. So, so that's the simplest level, but, but we have to get deeper than that. Um, one of the things that I was just thinking about, and uh, I really haven't seen, uh, I haven't really seen this written anywhere. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm not the first to say it, but, but uh, it's a new thought for me. So, so, so let me just... Um, let me just spell it out. What, what's going on with the sukkah? <clears throat> what is a sukkah? You see, on, on the one hand, we want to say that um, Hashem creates the world on Rosh Hashanah. And for sure, that's true. For sure, that's true. But I want to go a little bit deeper than that. And I want to say that really the sukkah, and I'll, 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 I'll backtrack, I'll, I'll show you how I'm deriving this in a moment. But let's just start with the, the headlines and we'll work backwards a little bit. The sukkah is really God is bringing the world into creation. We're giving us a visualization of, of, of the concrete form of the world on its most simple, pure, and basic level. Um, you know, bless you. You know, the sukkah, the sukkah correlates, sitting with the sukkah, the whole time of sukkah is called Zman Simchasenu, which means the time of our joy. And um, there, there, it's very important to understand why this is the time of our joy, especially since the mitzvah of being happy is, is incumbent upon us really all the time, it's especially mamish like a halacha, simchas yantif, on the Yom Tovim. So we actually have a mitzvah of simchas yantif to be joyful on the holidays, Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot. So it's actually an outright mitzvah on the other Yom Tovim. So with that in mind, it's a little bit mysterious that this is called Zman Simchasenu, since halachically speaking, the other times are also Zman Simchasenu. But they're not called Zman Simchasenu. This is called Zman Simchasenu, the time of our joy. So, so what's unique, what is uniquely, purely joyful about this particular period? And let's just zero in on this. And my, my, my understanding of it is that, is that as Reb Nachman, um, teaches, we, we are, um, in our most natural state, in our purest state, we are in a place. We are in a place of joy, 
And what happens is, after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, our sins are forgiven and we're cleaned up. And so we're back to our most natural state. Right now, we're in our most balanced, truest state right now in the year. Because we're basically sin-free. We're sin-free. So this is us. So this is Mansim Chaseinu. Not that we're arriving necessarily at a place of joy, but we're returning to our true selves, which are created in a place of joy. Um, so, so, so that makes sense. Now, now there's another aspect. Um, the Nitiva Shalom, the Slonim Rebbe, talks about how when you're sitting in the sukkah, the sukkah is a very spare place. It's a very uncomplicated place. It's just a, a hut, really. So basically, it's a place that's free of gashmias. It's a, it's, a, it's a place that's been stripped free of materialism. And so there's a direct correlation between one's ability to unhinge themselves from materialism and one's ability to be happy. And so that's another reason why this is called the time of our joy, because we're really surrounding ourselves by simplicity. Um, and we talked about it, actually, the last time we got together, that bracha that I heard, I wish I could tell you from who, that we should have what we want, and we should want what we need. Right? Meaning that, that the only things that we really should want are what we need, but that we should be happy with that. We should actually want what we need. And so, so that... Um, so the sukkah really represents the culmination of that and the, the true realization of that. Because everyone who walks into a sukkah is happy. It just hits your happy buttons. You know, you just walk in and it's like you're happy. Because on a very deep soul level, you realize that when you're with Hashem and the sukkah is this, this sort of like this vessel of Hashem's light, when you're with Hashem, you really don't need anything else. You don't, and you, you, you feel it on a soul level. And it's so authentic because you, no one's teaching you this. Everyone arrives on it on their own. Whether, whether they can articulate it or not is something else. But they just feel right. You feel right. And part of that is a recognition that you don't need so much because there's just some, just you're surrounded by simplicity. Now, now I want to say, uh, I want to make a, a comparison that sort of came to me, which is um, there, there was an artist, a, a modern artist, his name is Piet Mondrian. And um, Mondrian is, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with his work, just put it in the uh, computer, put Mondrian, Google image, I guess, and you'll see you'll see what he did was, he, he really did some amazing art. Um, and he was, you know, like most of the modern artists, he was also a, a philosopher. He had tremendous ideas, what, what was meant to be behind the art, what ideas he was trying to bring out. He actually had a very fancy name for it. He called it a, um, uh, hope I'm saying this right. He called it a neoplastism. Okay? And, Basically, what he was saying, what he was trying to do is all of his, all of his art were, were, they were, they were like grids. 
Okay, so they were they were um, uh, re- uh, vertical lines and horizontal lines, and he used primary colors. And what his theory was in terms of modern art was that if you strip down all imagery, um, all representational imagery, like portraits or landscapes or whatever it is, ultimately speaking, it would be be able to be reduced to horizontal lines and vertical lines. And so what he was trying to do was to strip all of imagery, all of representation down to its core. And so, with that in mind, if you look at the sukkah, which is just vertical lines and horizontal lines, what you have is a miniature, a stripped-down miniature microcosm of the world. It's just, that's what it is. It's the world represented in its most utter simplicity. The world is a house. That's what the world is. That's, that's all the world is. It's a, it's a vessel that holds Hashem's light. That's all it is. And what happens is, is that we inevitably, and this is also from Hashem, this is not just our fault, this is, this is our challenge in life. We complicate everything. We complicate everything. And again, some of us, overly complicate things, and then that does become our fault. But but just to navigate oneself through the challenges of life really does involve complications. We, we, we sort of are, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're dwelling amidst it. But, but to, maintain, to maintain the simplicity of the world and the simplicity of our goal in the world is of the highest importance, because once we lose that focus, then 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 problems really begin. So, you know. So I want to get deeper now, because I, I started with a fairly sort of radical statement, which is that Sukkis, you're really seeing the creation of the world. Now, how can that be when we said that Rosh Hashanah, everybody knows, is the creation of the world? So what are we saying? Sukkot is the creation of the world. That seems to be a, you know, seems to be a, a bit of an odd uh, way to understand it. But I want to get a little bit um, deeper now. Okay. So our tradition is, is that Hashem created the world with ten utterances. And those ten utterances... I want to say correlate with the ten days that begin with Rosh Hashanah and culminate in Yom Kippur. So in other words, you have, the world doesn't really get concretized, really sort of like finished, so to speak, until Yom Kippur. Because that correlates with the tenth utterance, the tenth utterance of creation. Put another way, we say that Hashem on Yom Kippur Seals the books. That's the finishing of creation. It's the finishing of creation. The book of life, and as Rib Shlomo would say, the book of not so much, right? <laughs> Wouldn't like to say the name. So, so, so we, on, on, on this level, we really don't see, 
we really don't see the world coming into being until, so to speak, Yom Kippur, because that's sort of the ceiling. Okay. Now, now listen to this. You know, these four days, there's four days between between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. I want to say that these four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot correlate with Hashem's holiest name, with the Yud Vavke. And that's why, on a deeper level, these are days without sin. Now, if you look into the name, we say in English the Tetragrammaton, or the Shem Havaya, the Yud and the Hey and the Vav and the Hey. If you look into this name, which I want to say are these days in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, right? Because Yom Kippur is the 10th of Tishrei. Sukkot is the 15th of Tishrei. Okay, so that means there's the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. There are four days correlating with the Yud Vavke, right? So the, 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 the deeper... The, the, the deeper wisdom says there aren't four day, there aren't four letters to Hashem's name. There's really a fifth letter. What's the fifth letter? The tip of the initial yud. The Shel yud, they call it. This is the ray of light that Hashem shined into the vessels that became shattered. Okay, this is all Kabbalistic now. So this ray of light is the tip of the top of the Yud, the first Yud. If you can picture in your mind the letter Yud, you know that there's a little curve at the top of the letter Yud. It's like a little thorn, if you will. That little tip is its own entity. And that's counted as a, as a separate thing. Okay? So now, that little tip resembles a Yud in and of itself. And we know Yud is the letter... T- Yud is the number 10. So this correlates with the 10 days starting with Rosh Hashanah and going to Yom Kippur. So in other words, you have, I want to say the following. Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, that's 10 days. That's the tip of the Yud, which is a little Yud in of itself. Then you have the Yud Ke Vavke, which is the four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And then we have all of a sudden the sukkah appears. With our own eyes we can see the world. The light of the world was already gelling and gelling and gelling. Like we have this notion of tzimtzum. It was already, this light was being condensed and condensed and condensed, the light of Hashem, until you can see physicality. But on sukkahs you can actually see the most fundamental formulation of the world itself with your own eyes, and that's the sukkah. Believe it or not, there's a medrash that says that Sukkot is the first day of sin. That's when Hashem starts counting sins again. <laughs> and it could be, it could be that a very deep explanation would be because that's really the first time that you're seeing the world itself come into being. 
So now, now what do we do with this? You know, it says, all are blind until Hashem opens their eyes. If you look, one of the one of the Torah readings that we read on Rosh Hashanah, Hagar is out in the desert and Yishmael is there too, and they're dying of thirst. It looks like it's the end. They're going to die. And then Hagar prays, and Hashem answers her prayer, and He shows He shows them that there's a well right there. It says he opens her eyes and shows them the well that's right there. It's an amazing thing. Can you imagine you're dying of thirst and there's a well right there in the middle of the desert? It doesn't say that Hashem made a miracle and, and put a well there. And God isn't afraid to say, I made a miracle and put a well there because he tells us that he did that for 40 years. The well of Miriam traveled with us throughout the desert. It's outright called a miracle and that's what it is. We miraculously had water throughout the desert for those 40 years. So we're not shy about saying such an idea. And yet, that's not what's said there by Hagar and, and, and Yishmael. It says, the well was there the whole time. But all are blind until Hashem opens their eyes. Something can be right there. But Hashem doesn't open our eyes so we don't see it. You see it with Shaduchim also. Right? Yeah, he lived on the corner. I don't know how I never saw him. You hear stories like this. We lived in the same building. Somehow we never met. Or maybe even deeper than that, you know what? We were such good friends for so long. And then Hashem, I don't know, something happens. We just saw each other in a different way. All are blind until Hashem opens their eyes. It's amazing, the levels of miracles. The levels of miracles. What's a greater miracle? I don't know. That Hashem puts something in the world that wasn't there before? Or that Hashem shows you what's been there all along? I don't know. Different levels. Different levels. Different levels. But it's... um, Have you ever been to like a supermarket... And um, and you get one of these shopping carts that just wants to go right. <laughs> you cannot get it to go straight. And I, I've had this experience. You need like big muscles. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it should be such a physically taxing experience. It's I mean I've I've had it where I'm like huffing and puffing to push this thing. You know what that card is? That's us. That's us. We don't go straight on our own. We don't go straight on our own. And I don't care how well-intentioned a person is. We don't go straight on our own. And you know who's even worse? Men are worse than women, by the way, when it comes to this. You know, we need sitsis. We need to fill in. We need a yarmulke. We need to daven three times a day. We need 
all of this extra work that women don't need. And you know, there, there's a feminist strain in, in, among some people in, when they enter Torah. And they're like, they, they're entering it from the American, United States of American, U.S. Constitution standpoint. Freedom of equality. Hey, you've got tzitzis, where am I tzitzis? You don't need tzitzis. <laughs> it's like, you've got a prescription to Lipitor. How come I don't have high cholesterol? I want high cholesterol too, so that I can take Lipitor. It's like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? We don't go straight on our own. We don't, because that's the nature of this world. That's the nature of this world. Listen to this. Very deep Torah from the Katzka Rebbe. You know, the halachas of sukkah are surprising because the sukkah is, you know, you see, you, you have different levels of mitzvah in general. You have something called a kiyama mitzvah. This is a whole category of mitzvahs. A kiyama mitzvah means that if you do it, it's a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah. But you're not necessarily obligated to do it. So most, most halachic authorities agree that living in the land of Israel is called a kiyama mitzvah. There are those who famously disagree, that say it's an, it's an outright mitzvah, the Ramban, for instance, you have to live in Israel, and that's what it is. But somehow the opinion that got accepted among the Torah community in the world is that if you live in Israel, it's a mitzvah for sure, but you don't necessarily have to live in, in Israel. So there are different categories like this. Now, when you start to get into these levels, it gets, it gets a little tricky because it sounds like, okay, so that's an optional mitzvah. It's a bonus mitzvah. Maybe, maybe not. That, I think, would be a weaker way to understand this. There are certain things that are so holy, it's almost like Hashem says, you know what, if I've got to twist your arm, <laughs> just sit this one out. You know what? If you get it, if you're on the level of getting it, if you actually get it, Okay, good. But you know what? It's almost too high. It's almost too holy to spell it out and make you do it. You know, interestingly, there's a strain of thought which, like, when I first heard this, it like it jarred me. It sounded like a little bit weird. But it's like the more I think about it, the more I like it. And hopefully I've set up the thought so that it will be comprehensible. You know, it doesn't say in the Torah about Rosh Hashanah that it's the day of judgment. It doesn't say that. It talks about it as, you know, Yom HaZikaron, day of remembrance. And there's an opinion that one of the reasons why it doesn't say it's a day of judgment, like your whole year is decided, is because it's too holy. It's like not everything is actually spelled out in the Torah. You know, the intimacy, the actual, let's say, instructions for how a husband and wife are intimate with each other, 
It's not in Parsha's Akeb. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's in, that's in Deuteronomy. Just look over there. It's, it's not spelled out. As much as we say, and it's 100% true, it's 1,000% true, that every single thing is in the Torah, and everything absolutely is in the Torah, everything from the past, everything in the present that's going on right now, everything that's ever going to happen, it's all in the Torah. Nonetheless, certain things are too holy, so to speak, to be spelled out in detail. We understand them from different places, but it's not, it's not in the Chumash explicitly stated that the idea that the idea of something being of our year of our fate on some level although we have free choice obviously being spelled out on Rosh Hashanah it's so intimate that's so intimate the Torah doesn't even say it it's too intimate it's too holy so listen to this I heard Reb Shlomo say one time And he made an interesting comparison. It stayed with me. Which is that he said, you know, in Monte Carlo, there are certain casinos. And not everyone is welcome into every casino. Like, some casinos are like, you know, it's it's like for a more advanced clientele. And he said, he made that comparison with sukkahs. He said, certain sukkahs, it's like, there, there's sukkahs, and then they go up and up and up and up and up. And every sukkah has the potential to be one of those highest level sukkahs. So now with that in mind, with that in mind, let's try to understand the following mitzvah, which is maybe a surprising mitzvah. But we just said, remember, let's just review for a moment before we get to this point so it's, it's clear what we're trying to say. We have this level of the kiyuma mitzvah, Something that's a mitzvah if you do it, but you're not necessarily commanded to do it. Maybe because it's on such a high level. And something that the, that certain things that the Torah doesn't actually say because it's, it's really getting to the higher, most holy reaches in terms of the way God shapes the world and guides the world and makes the world. So now with that in mind, listen to this. So you're dwelling in the sukkah. The halacha is, if you say, I say it's too hot, or I say it's too cold, or I say I have a headache sitting here, a person is putter, they're halakhically permitted to leave the sukkah. So if we're starting from the premise that a person really is supposed to live in a sukkah, okay, if you have to go and have a job and all the rest, then of course, you know, you have to spend time out of the sukkah. That's, everyone agrees. But, the mitzvah really is to live in the sukkah. Anything that you would do inside your house, do in your sukkah. If you read the newspaper in your house, read in the sukkah. One should sleep in the sukkah if they can. Um, okay, so what does the Kutzker Rebbe say? He says, do you know why? So you would think that it's sort of like, okay, you have a headache? Tough luck. <laughs> Sit in the sukkah. It's too cold for you? Mimic, get a sweater. <laughs> Sit in the sukkah. You would think that that's, that would be the halacha. But it's not the halacha. I say it's too cold. I say it's too hot. I say I have a headache. 
All of those things allows you to leave the sukkah. So listen to this. The Kutzke Rebbe says that you know why you're permitted? Because once you're on the level of saying I, once you're, all, once you're in touch with your own ego in this sukkah, which is basically this, this, this heavenly sphere, once you're just sort of concentrating on yourself, there's no place for you in the sukkah anymore. That's why you can get out of the sukkah. Because there's no place for I inside the sukkah. Because you're inside of Hashem. You're in His, you're, you're locked in His embrace. And so if, if, if you're, so now with this in mind, we can understand the, the, these levels of, these levels of sukkahs that exist. You make your sukkah. If you're inside the sukkah, and all there is is Hashem, then this is like, and this is a very, very elevated sukkah. So, I'll tell you a story. I, uh, this is the type of story I think that they write, up, write in books. And um, you see stories like this and you, bless you, sometimes you scratch your head. But this is one of these stories that I was actually privileged to actually be there and to see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears. So, I, I tell you as a eyewitness to this that this is a true story. And there was really only three people involved in this story. So, um, There's a uh, great man. Um, he was very old at the time when this story happened, and it happened about 20 years ago. So I don't know, uh, I don't know where he is now. He should be blessed wherever he is. Uh, his name was Avraham uh, Nanus, um, and uh, he he was Russian. And he was uh, when I met him, he was a a very elderly Chabad Chassid, and um, he had he wrote a book uh, called Sabota, which I, I'm told means Saturday in Russian, and. Um, and basically, it was it was an account. It's a pretty thick book, actually. It's an account of all the times that they tried to kill him in Siberia um, for for being Jewish, and because he refused to work on on the Sabbath, they called him Sabota. Um, and he has many stories about, like for instance, the the time that uh, they. They took away his tefillin. He was putting on tefillin in, you know, this labor camp in Siberia. And uh, one of the Soviet guards took it away from him. And he basically said, that person is not going to live for doing this. And that person died later on that day. It was some freak accident where he got killed. Uh, the guards finally, uh, as I understand it, uh, started treating him differently when even in the freezing Siberian temperature, he would go to the mikveh and, um, 
You know, there are many stories about our tzaddikim who would do this, and I've been in cold mikvahs in my life, and I was even in one mikvah that was so cold that I thought I was having a heart attack while I was in it because it was so cold. And um, But I can't imagine it even compares to what it is that our tzaddikim on a regular basis would go to rivers and they would chip open the ice on the top of the river and then they would immerse themselves in the river. I can't even imagine how cold that water is. You know? And so he was going to do that and they were shooting at him, shooting guns at him to stop and their guns didn't work. And when their guns didn't work, then they said, okay, this guy is a holy guy, we're leaving him alone. So... By the way, I heard a story um, from Reb Shlomo that uh, it was about the, um, the Zidachayver Rebbe, who was a very great Kabbalist. And um, he went to the mikvah in the middle of the night and chipped open the ice on the mikvah. And he would immerse himself like halfway, I guess, up to his chest or something like this. And he would light a candle on the ice and he would learn Zohar. Right? So, um, so he was with uh, one of his Tamidim, I believe it was the Sansa Rebbe, who said, how, how, can you, how can you stand the cold? And he looked at him and said, you mean you don't know how to make the water warm? <laughs> so, <laughs> these are very advanced levels, but they're known to our tzaddikim. Um, so I went, and we're still talking about the sukkah here, believe it or not, but um, I, I, I was able, to, he was staying, uh, uh, Rav Nanis was staying at the, the Richie's house, Dr. and Mrs. Richie, Rabbi Richie, and uh, I went with a, a friend, and we, we, we met with him um, in Los Angeles. They lived at uh, 613 North Las Palmas. <laughs> I mean, what other address would a person like this be staying at, right? And, uh, and I sat with him with my friend. And, and he was, like I said, he was a, a Chabad Chassid. And um, he was promised by the Lubavitcher Rebbe at the time. I'm not sure which one it was. I guess it was the one we call the Friedeke Rebbe, um, that, uh, that, that he would make it to Israel. And that's what gave him strength the entire time while he was in Siberia, because he was promised by the Rebbe that he was going to make it to Israel. So, he, so that was it. He was going to make it to Israel. So this was an in-between thing, and that's all it was. And my friend asked him, he said, did you ever wonder why Hashem was doing this to you? Right? And I tell you, I saw this with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears. He looked at him and he said, it's none of my business. You know? So, so we sit in a sukkah, which is,
which is really which is really like the beginning the beginning of our launch into the year you know it's it's our our first sort of it's 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 an it's an it's like it's the first manifestation it's like the like i said like mandran like it's the the most stripped down representation of this world which is that it's just this it's just this very spare framework that holds god's light and we're we're dwelling amidst it and if there's an i then already there's no room there's no room for anything else get out if there's an i there, then get out already you know i heard a story one time someone was uh it was at a chabad yeshiva many many years ago someone went up to complain to one of the rabbis there he said this person's insulting me and that person's insulting me and this person's hurting my feelings and that person's hurting my feelings and the person said back to him that's because your ego is all over the place they can't walk anywhere without stepping on it <laughs> i think one of the biggest one of the biggest tricks in life is somehow somehow not to make it about us and it's it's one of the hardest things in the world you know there's a joke um there's a bartender and um the owner is kind of watching the b- bartender from behind the wall and someone gives the bartender $2 and the bartender puts for the drink to pay for the drink the $2 drink and the bartender puts $1 in the cash register and he puts another dollar in his own pocket and then someone comes buys a $5 drink he puts $2.50 in the cash register takes the other $2.50 and he puts it in his own pocket and and then someone else comes in buys another drink and he puts all of the money in his pocket and the owner runs out and he says aren't we partners anymore <laughs> you know all of life it's like god is handing us everything and we're supposed to hand it back That's gratitude. That's gratitude. That's being able to live on the level of not ascribing everything to our own power. You know, in Hazinu, one of the landmark psukim in Hazinu is Moshe Rabbeinu envisions the Jewish people and he sees in the future it says, you know, it's kind of like an old English translation, but it says that we got we waxed fat and kicked meaning we we made cash and we got arrogant you know 
We waxed fat, like when you think of the waxing of the moon. When the moon waxes, that means it's getting bigger. We waxed fat. You don't really say, you don't really hear it in modern vernacular. Hey, is everything okay? It looks like you've been waxing a bit. <laughs> Can you imagine going to the doctor and saying, you've waxed fat? <laughs> um, Got to exercise a bit. Uh, so, so, one of the one of the things that we get warned against is is this notion of ascribing everything to our own power. And the antidote to ascribing everything to our own power is that whatever we receive, we 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 give it back to God, so to speak. We're not taking half and putting it in the cash register and pocketing half for ourselves. That's that's theft. You know, the Gomorrah says, if you take food, if you eat food, and you don't make a blessing over the food before you eat it, you're stealing. It uses the word theft. You're stealing from God. Once you acknowledge that this apple, you say, before you eat an apple, you receive an apple, you give it back to God, so to speak. You say, God, this apple is yours, it came from you, and then God says, okay, now you can eat it. But, but we, have to be, we have to be honest. We have to be honest souls. Everything that comes our way, we have to give back to God. What happens is, is that slowly, slowly, um, slowly, slowly, yeah, hey, you did a great job. <laughs> you know how hard I worked? We have to work hard. But we also can't delude ourselves into thinking that that hard work was the, was the source so what happens is, is that slowly, slowly we say, hey, I worked hard. Meaning I put in my hishtadlis and bruch Hashem, God blessed me and everything is good. Okay, that's an even transfer. Then we say, yeah, I worked pretty hard. Then we think, okay, you know, 50% of it was my work for 50% of it was Hashem. And then slowly, slowly, we're not even partners anymore. We just give lip service. We say, hey, thank God. But in our hearts, we think, okay, it happened because I worked so hard. And then you know what happens? The sukkah stops being a sukkah at that point. The sukkah at that point has large velvet drapes on it <laughs> and a parquet floor and a big hanging chandelier. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it's sort of like, it's like, it's just garbed, man. It's just garbed. The body is a sukkah. The body is a sukkah. The soul is us, and we're dwelling inside of a body. The body leaves after 120. The soul goes on. 
The body is a sukkah. It's a temporary dwelling. You know what happens when a person waxes fat? You know? All those extra pounds? That's the drapes. (laughs) You know? You know, it says... uh, you know, when it says in Pirkei Avos, it says something pretty, uh, boy, it just, uh, it just doesn't, it's pretty, pretty direct. It says, what is it? Um, I hope I'm quoting it right, but it's talking about a person's uh, physicality. And by the way, I'm not talking about being overweight or anything like that. That's, that's not my point right now. I, I, I mean, I, of all people, have weight to lose. I'm not a... Uh, I'm not talking about being physically fat right now. I'm talking about one's orientation and one's uh, how 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 the material aspects of this world just sort of like like osmosis become absorbed into our consciousness. That that that's what I'm talking about. Just just so I'm clear. Um, but basically, it says the more fat, the more worms. Meaning, after 120, when we put underground, you know, bless you. I mean, it's it's a very humbling way to look at one's life, but if one's looking at one's life as basically, I'm just preparing a dish for some worms. <laughs> that's kind of tough. That's, that's pretty hardcore. That's kind of hardcore. But... I didn't say it. <laughs> um, but the soul? Oh my goodness, the soul? So, so let's just go back to that shopping cart for a moment. The shopping cart, which is always turning in one direction, but if we hold on to it, it stays straight. You know, Hashem did something really amazing with the manna, the bread that fell from heaven. What he did was, he said to us, look, you know, one of the, what I think interesting disconnects that you see is, in conversation, when something came out of nowhere and it's a joyous thing, we say, it's like, it was like bread from heaven. It just fell from heaven. But if you look at the description of mana in the Torah, the very first opening description of mana, it says, it says, I'm testing you with the mana. It was a test. And what was the test? I'm giving you food for today. And not for tomorrow. And tomorrow, I'm giving you food for today. And not for tomorrow. And the next day, I'm giving you food for today. And not for tomorrow. Friday, we got a double portion. And by the way, some people think that when you went outside, instead of your one portion being there, there was two portions there. It wasn't like that. Look in the Rashi. You got one portion on Friday, not two portions. And then you brought it home inside your tent, and it became two portions. So even within that double portion, there was still a whole test of Amuna. Are you going to gather more than you're supposed to? 
But then you got a double portion. And then some people tried to be real smart, you know. They said, okay, well, you know what, I'm just going to save a little bit. <laughs> and the next day it turned into worms. You know, I was talking with a good friend, and um, we were talking about, this is for all you freelancers out there, by the way, okay? I'm being very serious. I, I was very sort of, like, this struck me very strongly. Freelancing is really like living on the level of man, you know? Because it's sort of like, well, I got this job, what's coming next? You know, I don't know. You know? And, uh, you know, one's mazel. Mazel is a very, very deep subject. But there's an, usually people talk about the, you know, the astrological aspects of mazel. And that's certainly a dimension of it. By the way, the, the way I, I heard it explained, Rabbi Tatz put it in a very, uh, very understandable way, to me anyway, which is that uh, he says, imagine like you have a, a can of something, right? And let's say inside the can is um, stewed tomatoes, for instance. So the label outside the can tells you what's inside the can. You can't see what's inside the can because it's a can, right? But the label on the outside tells you what's inside the can. So it is with one's um, moment of birth. The arrangement of the stars and the planets is like the label describing the nature of the light that's coming down at that moment, at the moment of your birth. It's a description. The arrangement of the planets is like the label on the can. It's a description of the quality or the nature or the personality of the light that's coming down at that moment. Um, And so in that respect, there are sort of, so to speak, kosher forms of astrology. It is forbidden for us to try to predict the future. We can't go to palm readers. We can't go to psychics. We can't do any of that stuff that's forbidden by the Torah. We can't try to tell the future. However, there, it's, known, it's known what the general categories of the personality of the light of the different months are. And that can give us insights into our personality in terms of rectifying our personality, giving us insights into ourselves, what we have to develop on a character level. To that extent, you can use these notions of astrology in a kosher way, but not to predict the future. But the whole subject of astrology is not off limits. It's just there are certain boundaries to it, and one has to understand. And if one wants to look deeper into this, certainly the classic text is the B'nai Asaschar, who's uh, the dinner of a Rebbe, who goes month by month and he really describes all of the different things in each month, the personalities of the, of the months and things like that, and it will give you insight into, into yourself if you, if you want to look into those sources. However, I want to concentrate on a different aspect of Mazel, which is, which is that Hashem creates our life circumstances in order for us to have the ideal environment to fix what we need to fix during this lifetime. 
As Reb Shlomo put it one time, this whole world is like one big hospital clinic. Everybody has something to fix. Everyone is like a little bit sick. Everyone has something to fix in this world. And Hashem gives you the ideal life circumstances in order for you to be able to fix what you need to fix. Now, for instance, if someone, if someone needed to work on their amuna, their faith in God, and that were an essential aspect of their tikkun nefesh, the, the, the rectification of their soul, if Hashem were to make that person a billionaire, say, with no financial troubles whatsoever their entire life, that would not be a real chesed to that person. Because that person would never have to really access that aspect of themselves that much. Okay, but there are different tests of wealth. Wealth can be, well, I think really, what I have to rectify in my life is that I think it's all me. So then, wealth actually is a very good test for that person. Because a person has to come to realize amidst that, that it's not all them. Okay, so, so we have different aspects. But this governs whether, you know, all sorts of things. What age a person's born into? What, 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 what part of the world a person's born into? Male or female? Rich or poor? Intelligent? Not so intelligent? All of these aspects are uniquely designed to maximize the environment for a person to fix whatever they need to fix in their life. God knows what He's doing. So I just want to connect it for a moment to freelancing and mom. <laughs> it seems to me, this is me talking right now, it seems to me that if one is a freelancer in life, that that's a big part of their life in this world because that's their livelihood. And of course, a person could have picked another job, it seems. So, but, so um, I can't say this as a blanket, blanket, blanket rule, but I'm just talking in general right now. It seems to me that that person has been put very much in a place of a man type of existence. That their circumstances have been tailored to a man type of existence. And that the whole idea of man is, as it says in the Torah outright, I'm testing your faith. Do you, do you believe that it's going to come the next day? Do you believe that I'm taking care of you? And so, so, the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is that Hashem put us all in this circumstance for 40 years. Every single day for 40 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And what He imbued in the collective Jewish soul during this time in the desert, between Egypt, on the way to Israel, was this national, deep level of faith in God. Because we got through this test of the man. This deep, deep level of faith in God. And now, Hashem gives us this awesome opportunity, and I'll just end with this thought, where we're able to dwell in the sukkah, which is also, 
this incredible opportunity to imprint on our own souls for the rest of the year this awesome faith in God and also this fundamental understanding of the ultimate simplicity of the world. You know, have you ever noticed people are always talking about babies in the best way? On some level, that doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> have you ever asked a baby to do your taxes? <laughs> or to run to the market to buy you some batteries? A baby can do so little, really. And yet, there's something about babies that we just love. More than anything else, it makes us forget everything else about all the things that they can't do. Which is that they just seem to get the most basic thing in the world. I'm alive, thank God. <laughs> and everything is so remarkable. And when we see that, we don't, you know, it's like, you know, that famous line from the movie, you had me at hello? <laughs> we don't want to investigate anything more than that, you know? A baby just has us at that, that look of wonder. You know, that fresh imprint. And Hashem is giving us that ability right now. He's putting us in the sukkah. He's stripping everything away and He's just showing us the newness of the world itself, the structure of the world itself. And he says, this is it. This is it. Burn it into you. Live inside this. Make it you. Make me you. Get rid of that I. Live in here. Stay with this. I heard something so beautiful from Rabbi Smiles this morning. Never heard this before. Which is, you know, what happens after to the sukkah? At the end of sukkahs. So he said it goes inside you. <laughs> as much as we're taking down the walls and putting them in our garage. Okay. That's for spoiled sports. <laughs> That's too much of a wet blanket thought. That here's my sukkah and where did it go? It went in my garage. I don't know. I think it's deeper than that. Where did the sukkah go? It went inside you. Sukkah is over, now it's inside you. So Shem should bless us that we should just keep it inside of us and have that clarity. Have that clarity and keep that clarity. And, um, you know, what more can we ask for?